0: Want more of the Josh Scanlon Podcast? Please. Please. Here you go. The Josh Scanlon Podcast starts right now. Welcome, my friends, to another edition of the Josh Scanlon Podcast. Today, I'm just going to ramble on a little bit about investment management fees and and how i've come to despise them frankly and i hate to sound like this because i think investment management fees make sense if you're getting something for it more than just investments and what i mean by that is that some of these guys charge and mostly the big firms there's some smaller firms that probably do this as well but from my experience in this industry, most of the big firms, they put you on these managed portfolios and they just sit there and you call them every now and again, maybe once or twice a year. Um, and you're going to get a new rep every time you talk to them. Uh, very rarely do they call you or if they call you, they leave a voicemail for you to get back with them. And it's just, man, it's just not the way it's supposed to be because they're charging, let's just say, 1.85 all in. And what I mean by that is they're going to have some mutual funds that cost 1%, and they're going to have investment management fees that cost 0.8 or 0.1 or whatever. I mean, not 0.1, 0.8 or 0.75. Or they'll have investment management fees that cost 1.5, and they're going to put you in ETFs, low-cost ETFs. And at the end of the day, you're still paying one5 to 2%. And when you think about it, As I've said before, a couple of times on this podcast and certainly on my uh, YouTube channel, if the average market returns going forward is 7 percent before inflation. I mean, you just got to think this through 7 percent before inflation. And how am I getting there? I'm getting there from 2 percent dividends and 5 percent year over year growth. It's just it's literally that simple. Will we sometimes get 10 percent? Sure. And that only reason we're going to get 10 percent is because the P.E. ratios have gone up. The, the stocks that you own have become more uh, in demand and anything that gets high in demand, the price goes up. It's just basic economics. The more demand, the higher the price, the less demand, the lower the price. And let me just tell you how what I mean by that. Exactly. If three people are bidding on one home, the homeowner is going to get a higher price because three people are bidding on it. Thus, there's higher demand if 3 people are selling a home and only one homeowner is there to, and one only one guy is there to buy it the price of the homes are going to go down because the supply outnumbers the demand. Does that make sense? So if you got the demand side, 3 buyers and the supply side just one home, the price of the home is going to go up because these 3 people want to buy that house. If you got the demand side of one buyer and the supply side of 3 buyers, The price of the house is going to go down because the one buyer is is, they're competing against that one guy. It's just basic capitalism and competition. And that's it. That's what happens with demand. The higher the demand, the higher the price. So when stocks, they might go more than 7% because the fundamentals are only 7%, 2% dividends plus 5% year over year earnings growth without question. If it gets to 10%, that means the P.E. ratios, the demand of the stocks has gone up. And so people are willing to pay more. For $1 of earnings. That's all that means. But that is a fake number that is not sustainable simply because if earnings goes, if, price, if the if the money people are willing to pay for a dollar of earnings continues to go up, at some point it's going to be too high and it'll come back down to normal. Right now it's about 17, the PE ratio for the four 12 months, which is a little bit on the high end, relatively speaking. But given the interest rates are so low, that's not that high at all. In fact, some people can even say it might be undervalued relative to historic historic norm, norms when you look at the interest rates. I'm not I don't know if I believe that, but I'll just say the, the market is certainly not overly valued like some people are making it seem. However, so if we're looking at 7 percent rate of return and that's all we're getting, unless people suddenly become a lot more uh, eager to pay up to bid up prices to make them higher than when we're looking at 7 percent. So, if seven percent rate of return, all right, we factor in two percent inflation. We'll just use that. So, our, our real return is five, five percent real return, of which two percent goes to your investment management. So, forty percent of your real return is going to your investment management. You can't write that off anymore. Those are not deductible. If they're an IRA, it wasn't deductible anyway, but they're not deductible fees. You can't write them off. And that was one of the things with the investment management industry. They said we could write, you could deduct them. Well, those days are gone, and rightly so, I might add. So is it worth it paying forty percent of your net return? And I mean, are you going to are you going to get that in outperformance? The answer is no. It's just it's, it's just not even debatable. Yeah, there will be a guy who does it. There'll be a lady who does it on occasion. You can't know who that person is in advance, and you certainly don't know if that person is going to maintain it. There's just no way. In fact, it's, it's impossible. It's a crapshoot. It's a crapshoot. Um, Joe will get more returns for the first three years, and then Jane. Then Joe will fall off a cliff because the reason he got more returns is because he took a contrarian approach. Jane will get more returns for the next three years, and Joe will fall off a cliff. Re- and then everyone's going to chase after Jane uh, after she her performance number shows good. But then she'll fall off a cliff because the only reason she got her returns is she went against the grain and took the contrarian approach. At some point, Joe and Jane are going to go back to underperforming. They'll come back to outperforming, underperforming, outperforming. It's just it's just the nature of the beast when you're going on investment manager. And so the market as a whole will give you a, the in between Joe and Jane's return. That's what you're going to get. But don't forget, with Joe and Jane, you're paying a hefty fee. So not only are you going to get some outperformance and some underperformance, when you factor on the fee, you're going to get more underperformance than the market as a whole because a fee is eating 40% of your real return which is why I don't like investment management fees. Now, the again, so if you're if you if you're investing for the sake that you're going to outperform, well, just stop. It's just you're not going to get that. Someone's going to show you one of these big firms, a benchmark they use to show you how they outperform. Well, what is in the benchmark? I mean, my God, do we ever see what that benchmark consists of? That's what drives me crazy. Well, the benchmark is up 14. We're up 15. Net of fees. Well, what's the benchmark? Uh, what is it composed of? <laughs> ah, you don't get that. You never see that part. You never see that part. And that's what drives me crazy, too. So if you're up over the benchmark, are you going to show me what the benchmark is composed of? And if you're up over the benchmark, does it show you that maybe you're a little bit contrarian, which is fine? But at the end of the day, are you contrarian? Is that sustainable? And the answer is no. So I'm not here to tell you don't pay investment management fees. I mean, shoot, I'll I'll earn a fee for investment, but I'm not going to earn the fee because I think I can beat the market. I don't believe that in the least and nor should you. But if people want to pay an investment management fee in order to have financial planning, well, that's fine. You got to pay for it. You got to pay me financial planning fees. There's just no getting around that. I've got to get paid to keep my house, to put my kids, shoes on the kids, put food on the table. So everyone's got to get paid. There's nothing wrong with that. The issue, though, is if I'm getting if I'm paying investment management fee and I'm getting underperformance, which assuredly I will. What else am I getting for the fee? And I just, these big firms, they don't give you anything. In fact, half the time, you don't even talk to them, but once every few years. And now they might say that's because of you. I've seen this happen in my previous firms. A guy will say, I don't want to talk to you. And I'm saying, well, why are you paying us a 1.85% fee? And he's he just, and the answer is, he doesn't know. I don't know. It's like, don't do that. But you can never talk to the guy because the guy doesn't want to be bothered with this stuff. And that's fine. That's his money. I don't care. But that's typically probably not the person who's listening to this podcast or going to my YouTube channel or following this kind of stuff. And so my question I have to you is, do you have a firm that's managing your money for a fee that is not offering you financial planning advice? Maybe talk to them once a year and they give you an asset allocation. They say, oh, well, you know, you're doing fine asset allocation or we've underperformed the benchmark. We outperformed the benchmark. I mean, all that stuff. That's not that's that's not worth the fee you're paying. It just is not, my friends, not. And it bothers me because in the in the day of low interest rates and low market returns going forward, which most people believe is going to happen. You're going to have an outlier every year like we had in 2017. But by and large, you're not going to get 10, 12 percent rates of return just before or after inflation. You're just not going to happen. So, the, the question is, how do you maintain your portfolio given this? I mean, given the structure, low interest rates, uh, higher stock valuations, relatively speaking, to so the historical norms. We haven't had a down market since what, uh, 2009. We had a little bit of one in, in, in August 2011, a little bit of one to start the beginning of 2016. I think there was a little bit of one in 2015 as well. But nothing that was anything near historical norms at 20 percent. We just haven't had it. So it's coming. And when it does, hopefully that's going to shake people out of their, uh, I don't know, naiveness. I don't know. Naivety, Na- naivety, whatever that word is, because I think right now a lot of people are just sitting back thinking, "Ah, everything's OK, I don't need to do anything. And I just say, don't. If you haven't heard from your investment management group, be it a large firm or small group or a small firm, in over a year, I, I hate to say it, it's on you. Um, you need to because you're paying these guys a significant amount of your potential return. That is money that's coming out of your pocket going to theirs. Do you ever wonder why these big investment guys are billionaires? You know, I, talk, I, I cited uh, John Bogle's interview with the guy from Motley Fool. And uh, he was talking about the folks at Fidelity who are worth $20 billion. The guy tom steyer is a big democratic campaign contributor he's worth billions of dollars and i mean the mercers i think were investment management people we're on the right right wing side they're worth billions of dollars lots of billionaire investment managers why well, are they making that money for their clients i don't know i don't know i doubt it i mean is fidelity making that money for their clients i don't think so does that mean they're evil no but that means there's certainly a better way. You are returning a portion of your terms to Fidelity, to Stire, to, and I hate, I'm not sure if Mercer, I think Mercer is, but I don't know. It's just, I, I don't like that. And now it's one thing if they're doing something for you for those fees, financial planning in particular, I cannot tell you how many people I've talked to in my 20 plus years. have a guy who's selling them stocks or you know diversifying their portfolio running asset allocation models for one half percent and then you look at their accounts and the beneficiary designations are led are they're leaving their assets to their estate for the love of mary they don't have they don't have durable powers attorney their wills are not coordinated with the beneficiary designations which are not coordinated with a trust or they have trusts that aren't funded uh, it drives me crazy. And I'm saying, what exactly are we getting for this one and a half percent we're paying? So don't forget for one hundred thousand dollars, that means you're paying one thousand five hundred dollars a year in in fees. One thousand five hundred on a hundred thousand dollar investment. So if you're only gonna make seven percent, that means a hundred thousand bucks is gonna return seven thousand dollars before inflation now, and you're gonna take away one thousand five hundred of that right out of the gate. So now your hundred thousand dollars has grown net of fees to $1,500, no, no, $105,500. Now you're gonna have to take some inflation off there too. So you're netting about, like I said, about three to 4% net of fees and inflation. And you're still taking on a pretty significant amount of risk to get that 7% too, because 7% is stocks, that's stocks, that doesn't include bonds, that's just straight stocks. If you're gonna add bonds to the mix and the 30 year treasury is trading at 3.5, well, and then you're looking at, you know, 3.5 plus 7 on the stocks, that's 10.5 divided by 2. What's that? 5. Uh, 5.25 is your is your gross rate of return, 5.25 on a 50-50 portfolio. Looking at 3.5% 30-year treasury and a 7% stock market return, 5, 5.25, that's before inflation fees. And again, if you're getting reliable financial advice, I don't have any problem with that. It's worth the fee. In my opinion a hundred times out of a hundred in fact i tell my wife when i die to go talk to this one guy because i know he's going to take care of her now he's going to charge her yeah he's going to charge her one percent if i die tomorrow she's going to be rich well not rich but she'll have a decent life insurance policy Rich, riches in the eye of the beholder but she'll get she'll have some money for him to work and he'll get paid because he's going to do full-fledged financial planning to make sure she's taken care of for the rest of her life my kids are taken care of maybe not for the rest of their life but as long as they can that her taxes get done, her estate gets done, and that she doesn't have to worry about all that. And the lack of worry is worth a couple thousand dollars a year alone because her husband's gone, for sure. But if you just put her in some account with a mutual fund company and getting 1.5% for not doing anything, and then on top of that, the mutual fund guys are getting paid, well, that's the wrong answer. And that shouldn't happen. And if that's happening to you, you need to stop that now. So the recommendations I always give to people if you want to pay asset under management fee, that's fine. Try to keep it below 1% all in, all in. That's 1% or less all in. And that simply means what is your funds that the investment advisor is using and what's his or her fee. If his or her fee is 0.5 and the funds they're using are 0.5, there's your 1% all in fee roughly. You also have to ask about trading costs. This is one of the things that gets uh, overlooked quite a bit. Trading costs can add a little bit of fees to it. A lot of people you know, kind of say, ah, it's only, you know I don't know, it's only a couple hundred bucks a quarter. Well, if it's a 1000 bucks a year, that's 1%. That's 1%. A $100,000 portfolio, that means the trading cost is going to cost a $1,000 on top of the investment management fee. So you just need to know what the all-in fee is that you're being charged. And then you need to know what you're going to get for it. Are you getting actual true financial advice? And that's not just investment management because investment management is not financial advice, as I'll say a million times a Sunday. Investment management is investment management. Financial advice is all the things we talk about. Looking at your enforced illustration on your life insurance, making sure your estate plans in order, looking at your 1040, looking at your debt scenario. What are we trying to accomplish from a tax perspective going forward? All this stuff. Proactive planning is what I call it. And that's what your fee pays me for right there. And you can pay me either straight up monthly retainer or you can pay me as investment management fee. Either way, you're going to get proactive planning. That's all there is to it. And if you don't want proactive planning, I'm probably not the guy for you because that's what I like to do, proactive planning. But I need you to know that the the advisor you're working on has to get paid. Every single advisor gets paid. If you are just putting your money in a mutual fund account that's being charged 1.5% and only talk to your guy once a year and he's giving you a basic asset allocation, stop that right now. Stop it right now. Save your money and just go to index funds. Put it into a... A Target or a Vanguard lifecycle fund index fund a TSP lifecycle fund be done with it And keep your money because that's your money that you're giving to your investment management firm Who's getting rich off your back? And how do we know that the proof is in the pudding as Bogle talked about with fidelity 20 billion dollars of net worth right there That's not because they're a stout investors that's on their fees that they're charging their clients I don't look I'm not here to bash the Johnson family or anything like that I'm just saying at the end of the day that money's come from someplace it's coming from their clients when they could easily those clients could have easily just put in the market and index funds and kept a lot of that 20 billion to their own pockets for sure. All right. So that's my diatribe today, guys. Um, I put a song on the day. I haven't thought of three. Yet. I want to think about a good song. Nothing really came to my mind on the top of my head. But it's hockey season. Oh, there's a good song that. Yeah, there's a, I, 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 I try to avoid the dropkick Murphys just because they became so trendy. But Black and Gold is a Bruins song they sing. I love it, actually, because I love hockey and I love the Boston Bruins. And the Bruins just beat Toronto Maple Leafs in game four last night. So they're up three games to one against the Leafs. We're going back to Boston tomorrow uh, for a uh, – actually, uh, I think it's a matinee game. So that's I'm pretty excited by that because, man, if the Bruins can advance the playoffs, life is good. So I'll play the the Black and Gold song, I think it's what it's called, by Dropkick Murphys. I haven't heard that song for a long time, actually, but it's, uh, it's a good song. There's another similar kind of band up in uh, Portland, Maine, where I'm from. They talk about the Portland Pirates, the old American Hockey League team, that, uh, that the Maine Mariners were my team growing up in minor league hockey when I was in, lived in Maine. The Maine Mariners was my minor league team back in the 70s and 80s, and they were the, uh, a farm team for the Philadelphia Flyers, and they became a farm team for the Devils, I think. But I know that at some point they're for the Bruins, I believe. And they moved to Providence. Rhode Island so they were gone for a couple of years and then uh the Maine civic center um they it was empty so some some group a group bought it, uh, a team and brought them to uh, Maine to come the Portland Pirates and this band up in uh, Portland I'm drawing a blank what the pub crawlers the pub crawlers had a song for the uh for the Portland Pirates maybe I'll play that one instead actually um and that was a pretty good song. But the uh, the Portland Pirates are no more now. The Maine Mariners' second iterations come back starting this fall up there. Um, but it's not quite the same look. It's a, eh, a little. It's like almost like the Hartford Whaler colors, a blue and kind of like a teal. Yeah, I'm not a big fan. I wish they'd bring back the black and orange uh, from the Maine Mariners of when they were Flyers uh, farm team. That that was just fantastic. There's another punk rock band called the The Boils who does a song about uh, the Philadelphia Flyers. Maybe I'll play that one. (laughs) Either way, lots of good hockey songs out there in the hardcore slash punk rock area, which I love because hockey is just, it's just, hockey is the best sport ever. So, in fact, just as an FYI, in case you're wondering, the introduction to this podcast is uh, a guy on YouTube (laughs) was taken with his cell phone, a camera of the 2013 Game 7 when the Bruins were down against the Leafs, four to one, I think halfway through the third period and it was in game seven at Boston and I, you could hear a pin drop. And this guy was at the game. The Bruins tied up with about a minute left in the third, which coming back from three goals in hockey in of itself is pretty amazing. Come back from three goals in hockey in the third period in game seven. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I think that might be the biggest comeback ever. Um until Tom Brady uh, came back against the Falcons, which was just fantastic. But anyway, so the Boston Bruins came back and they tied it up. And of course, all New Englanders, northern New Englanders, are thinking there's no way they're gonna win because you know we've had our heart broken so many times. And they came back and won. Patrice Bergeron scored a goal, and this guy was videotaping the whole thing on his phone and was able to kind of you know cut a little bit of, of it out there and just show him the last couple uh seconds before the before patrice scored the goal and the crowd went insane it's just awesome so that was my intro for this podcast and uh at some point maybe i'll add a song to it or something like that but man oh, oh how happy was that so all right well good uh appreciate you staying on there guys if you have any questions thoughts concerns let me know and we'll see you next time on the heritage oh, not heritage wealth planning that's my uh that's my youtube channel and that's my uh my blog, heritagewealthplanning.com, but this is the Josh Scanlon Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.
1: It's been fifteen years or more Since the mariners lay still south And the people cried out in the freezing cold We need heroes, came the shouts And up in the distance and lo and behold What could it be that we spied? That ship with black sails Strong men on the rails Was a pirate to save say we were tired. And the other two that they stopped their speech should go to watch their back For the portland pirates The boys have the red and the black Yeah, the portland pirates The boys have the red and the black These men take to the ice Like our fish to the sea They'll fight not a blink in their eye But a bastard will bow It's a brave will tell me will make the monarchs cry. Drunks howl all night down in the depths. To know that I do will go the blind. There's cowards and there's the devils they hear. They'll turn to a pack and a bunch. Can be empty, but I mix up their state. Should know to watch for their backs. But the I'm Portland Pirates, the boys in the red and the black. Yeah, the Portland Pirates, the boys in the red and the black. Street. A home to the city, the city center would roar When Maxi and the man who shed much and drowned you Guarded the score They were men, they were giants as they took to the ice A killer, the Ransky was great And they shouldn't be Who could hit so damn hard Can't was the man of the state And the other that they me their should know to watch their backs For the boys, the pirates, the boys, the red and the black Yeah, the, port, the pirates, the boys, the red and the black